thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have the opportunity to get to speak to you this morning. Today, we're going to be talking about the story of Jonah. Throughout the history of the nations of Israel and Judah, the Lord sent prophets to speak his word, to make his will and his way known to his people. The prophets were often rejected, hunted down, and even sometimes killed by the very people that they were sent to speak to. But today, we're not going to talk about one of those prophets. Today, we're going to be talking about a prophet who, although he had to be corrected a few times, successfully changed the hearts and saved the lives of thousands of people. Today, we're going to be studying the story of the man who ran from God, the story of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a book that's been discussed and argued over for many years. It's often been something that uh, has been a large point of controversy to many scholars because they have differing interpretations about its content and about its meaning. Now, when it comes to discussing the genre and the purpose of the book of Jonah, there are three main views uh, that people take. There are three main camps that they fall into. Now, these three main views that people take are, first of all, the mythical interpretation. Now, the the mythical interpretation basically states that uh, a myth came about at the time of the writing of Jonah due to an event that happened in the nation of Israel. There are those that call it an allegorical story, stating that it's simply an allegory for the nation of Israel's capture, repentance, and restoration. And finally, there's the view that we take, which is the historical approach, which simply states that the story is nothing short of historical fact. Now, we as Christians who believe in the authority of the Bible and the words of Christ simply have to take the historical approach if we're going to understand the book of Jonah. Christ himself mentions the story of Jonah and refers to it as if it were a historical event in both Matthew 12, 39 through 41 and Luke eleven twenty nine and 32. They're essentially two retellings of the same statement. So I'll read the passage from Matthew 12, 39 and 41. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the, in the, heart, the heart of the earth. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So one of the first things that we have to do whenever we're, under, we're trying to understand a book in the Old Testament or even a book in the New Testament is understand and establish the historical context so that we can understand why it was written and who it was written to. First, we'd be well served to discuss the man that the book was written by and about, the son of, uh, Jonah, the son of Amittai. He was a court prophet, meaning that he served under the king. And he served at the time of King Jeroboam II, who was ruling in the nation of Israel. Now, Jonah was said to have been born and raised in the small town of Gath-Hefer, which is about four miles north of the town of Nazareth. And it's believed that Jonah is the same Jonah that was referred to in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14 and 25, which I'll read now, 2 Kings 14, 25. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohemoth to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, uh, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. 
This is the same Jonah that we read about in this, in this prophetic book, the son of Amittai, prophet from Gath Heifer, uh, who restored some of the borders of Israel uh, through God's word. And so it was also said that Jonah did many things like this, like restoring the border. Uh, in history, it's said that Jonah did a lot of things for the nation of Israel and that he was a zealous patriot. Now, it's generally assumed uh, by most people that the book of Jonah... Uh, was written by Jonah himself. There are some minority groups, though, that hold a position uh, that a contemporary that also recorded the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, wrote down the book of Jonah. Now, the evidence, I think, most clearly points to Jonah himself being the author. So for this study, that's the lens we're going to be looking at this through. The book itself is generally assumed to have been written around the 750s BC, in the time of King Jeroboam II, as we stated earlier. This would have been roughly 30 years before Israel was taken into captivity, and it was actually seen as a really prosperous and bright era for the nation of Israel, economically and socially, despite rampant moral corruption and sinful degradation. Now, around half of the book occurs on the Mediterranean Sea. However, the main bulk and the true meat of the book uh, comes in the second half, which is set in Nineveh, which is otherwise known as the capital of Assyria. Now, we also need to discuss the intended audience for both the book and for the sermons themselves. The clear audience of Jonah's sermons was who he was speaking to, who he was sent to speak to, the people of Nineveh, the men and women that God wanted him to speak to in the first place. However, the book itself was not written for the people of Nineveh. They had already listened to the sermons and had repented and obeyed, so why would they need a book? The book itself was written for the people of Israel, the people of God. I think it's important for us also to take a look at the people that Jonah was sent to preach to. Now, we want to talk about the Assyrians. We need to really delve into the character of the people themselves and who they were. In verse 2 of the first chapter of Jonah, God tells Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. He tells Jonah that he's seen just how wicked the people of Nineveh have become, the people of Assyria have become, and he instructs him to proclaim judgment against them. The Assyrian Empire was, in fact, one of the most evil and brutal regimes in human history. In fact, many scholars have even called called them the ancient terrorists of the world. They've often been called ancient terrorists because of their brutal and their violent crimes against humanity. And they were there were oftentimes very few that would dare to stand against the Assyrian Empire. It was a nation that was founded on warfare and conquering because they had little farmland. So they relied on stealing from other nations in order to sustain their people. They were a nation that was led by warrior kings who found themselves firmly seated in Nineveh at their place of power. They were a nation that had become steeped in idolatry, worshiping gods, monsters, and idols and demons, along uh, with anything else that they could find. They were a drunken and a proud people, and they lived in a city of murder and lies. As we're told in Nahum chapter 3 and verse 1, it calls Nineveh this specifically. It says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. 
This was a people that had much strife and infighting in the country at the time of the writing of Jonah. They were a people that were in a period of decline, and it was a time of great tribulation. They were fighting a war with the country of Urartu in the north, and they were having great trouble with suppressing rebellions among their people. This was a nation that would have been weary of war and would have been looking for hope. And that's precisely what made this the perfect time for God to send Jonah to talk to the people of Nineveh. People that were looking for hope, looking for change. They were looking for something greater. And so that's exactly why this was prime time for God to send Jonah to speak to the people of Nineveh. Now with the stage set, let's go ahead and let's look at the brief summary that I've got prepared uh, of the book itself. And we'll read along as we go. And we'll start in, verse, in chapter 1, uh, and we'll read first verses 1 and 2, which is the call to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. In these first two verses, God makes his call to his servant Jonah, and he commands him to go to Nineveh to warn them of their coming judgment. God has finally had enough of what they've been doing. He's had enough of the wickedness and the sin and the vileness that he's seen around him. And he decides that it's time for the people of Nineveh to make a choice. Either repent and follow him or stay in their sin, which would lead to destruction. Then we carry on into verses 3 and 16 of the same chapter in chapter 1. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And so the sailors then said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and it fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, What should we do to you so that it may make the sea calm down for us? And so he said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault and that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for doing as this man, doing as you pleased. Then, the Lord, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And the man greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to him and made vows to him. In the next few verses here, we see Jonah's escape plan. We see his response to God's call. Instead of following through and obeying the commands that God gave to him, we see that Jonah instead decides to flee. 
He hops on a ship out to Tarshish, not to be confused with Tarsus, and he tries to run away from God. And as you can assume, this does not go well. God whips the ocean into a frenzy, and the waters are so rough that the ship itself is on the verge of being broken into bits and pieces. Now, something that we have to understand about these sailors' response is that in the ancient world, sailors were some of the most superstitious people around. They were a lot like baseball players now. Um, The sailors here, in the first chapter of Jonah, they would have thought that anything that happened, any storm, any calamity that came upon them while they were out in the ocean was because a god was angry with them. And in this case, they happen to be right. They're convinced that someone on the boat has angered the gods, and so they ask everyone on board if it's them. And finally, they get around to casting lots, and they figure out that it's Jonah, who was asleep under the deck. And Jonah, immediately realizing that this storm was, in fact, his fault, requests that the sailors throw him overboard. Amazingly, though, is the sailors' response to this. They don't first try to throw him overboard to immediately save their life. They try to row back to land to save his life, which I think is an amazing reaction. But eventually it becomes clear, and the storm grows heavier and more frenzied, that they aren't going to be able to save him. They're not going to make it if they don't throw Jonah overboard. And so they resort to throwing him into the sea to calm the oceans. And then carrying on into chapter uh, 1, verse 17, and then over into chapter 2 and verse 10, we see Jonah in the belly of the fish. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very hearts of the sea. And the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, and the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, and to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, O Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and I prayed to you, to your holy temple. To those who cling to worthless idols... Turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Now, carrying into this second chapter, we see that the fish that was sent to swallow Jonah doesn't kill him, but rather keeps him alive and well in its belly. And Jonah realizes his mistake. He truly comes to grips with understanding what he has done, the affront that he has has brought about while he's in the belly of this fish. And he makes a cry out to God. One of the interesting things about this prayer is that he's not making a cry for God to reverse his decision. He's not making a cry for God to save him from the belly of the fish. He's repenting. He is begging God for forgiveness. He is thanking God for what he has done up to this point by saving his life. God sees the truly penitent heart that comes from Jonah, from a man that's not asking for a reversal of his position, but is begging for forgiveness for his choices. And he orders the fish to spit Jonah out onto dry land. And now we begin to get into the third chapter, 
And we see Jonah's preaching and proclamations begin in verses 1 and th- uh, verses, through verses 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to get through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We see in this chapter the beginning of Jonah's ministry to the people of Nineveh. He has three days that he proclaims uh, the word of uh, the Lord to the Ninevites. And in this time that Jonah is speaking... In this time that Jonah is preaching, the people of Nineveh are listening. The people are realizing things that Jonah is saying are going to come true. Jonah went through the whole city over the course of three days. And there's something like several hundred thousand, maybe, uh, people in the city of Nineveh at this time. That's crazy to have to be able to speak to that many people in three days. I don't know if I'd be able to do that. I probably wouldn't. I'm lucky if I get around to talking to my parents in the morning. Um, But these people listen, and they understand this message that Jonah is speaking. And we see what their reaction to that is in verses uh, 5 through 10. We see that Nineveh repents. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed in all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of his king and of his nobles, do not let people nor animals, herds nor flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals both be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet restore us. And with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they behaved and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring them destruction which he had threatened them with. Now the second half of chapter 3 details the Ninevites' almost immediate repentance and transformation after the words of Jonah were proclaimed to them. All the citizens began a fast, began wearing sackcloth, and started wearing this burlap, sitting in ashes. Wearing burlap is a sign of mourning in ancient culture, a typical display of sorrow and sadness. When the king himself heard of what was going on, he tore off his robes, put on burlap, and sat in a pile of ashes, which would have been unheard of for royalty. He then makes a decree for the whole city to repent and to mourn of their sins in the hope that God would take mercy on them and spare their home. At the end of this third chapter, we see God do just that. He realizes that the people of Nineveh are truly repentant, that they are truly making a change. And he doesn't carry out the judgment. And instead, he shows mercy on the people of Nineveh. And we carry on here into chapter 4, the last chapter in Jonah. And in verses 1 through 4, we see that Jonah and God have a dialogue. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew 
that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah hated the Ninevites. We see in this chapter exactly the kind of hate and disdain that he had for them. We see that Jonah is upset with the board. He's angry, and he cries out to God. He calls for God to change his mind yet again. He tells the Lord, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were abounding in love. I knew that you were going to save these people, that you weren't going to destroy them. Jonah is furious. He's so angry that he says he even wishes that he were dead. Now, if you're someone that's read through Job, you might have kind of an idea of what you would expect from God's answer. In the book of Job, when he questions God after he's gone through great trial, the Lord answers Job's fury with an even more righteous fury and an even more lengthy answer that blows Job away. That's what you would expect to happen here in Jonah, when Jonah is asking God to kill him because he's so angry that he didn't destroy thousands of people. You would expect God to have a furious and angry answer with righteous indignation towards Jonah. But God answers him with one simple sentence. Is it right for you to be angry about this? And then we see in the last few verses of the book of Jonah, in in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 4, that God corrects Jonah. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he would grow faint. He wanted to die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead, he replied. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from their left, and also as many animals? So after God and Jonah's short dialogue, we see the true nature of God's plan to correct Jonah's behavior. As Jonah sat and awaited the fate of the city, God arranged for a plant to grow over his head to give him shade. But God also called a worm to eat that plant and to leave Jonah in the scorching heat and again leave him wishing for his own death. And so finally God challenges Jonah one last time, telling him that he was angry that the plant had died even though he had done nothing to put it there. He hadn't cared for it. He hadn't brought it up. He hadn't cultivated it. And then God likened that plant to the city of Nineveh, telling Jonah that he had no right to be angry that God spared a city full of 100,000 people and animals that he loved, that he had created, that he had brought into this world. In the book of Jonah, 
there are a few critical passages. There are six critical places in the book that I want us to look at. And the first of which is going to be chapter 1 and verse 4. So if you'll go back there, I'll read it again. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. This, sh- this verse shows us the power and omniscience of our God. No matter how far away Jonah tried to run, no matter how distant he tried to get from God, God knew where he was. Not only that, but he had the power to bring him back where he needed him. He had the power to whip up that storm to put Jonah where God wanted him to be. The next one I want us to look at is chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And this is a longer, so a little longer, so I'm not going to read it again. But I want you to look through it. And I changed my mind. I'm going to read it. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very hearts of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surround me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. And to the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth barred me in forever. But you, O Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good, and I will say salvation comes from the Lord. These verses in this passage show the type of repentance that we need to have when we realize that we are wrong, when we realize that we have messed up, when we realize that we have tried to run away from God and his will. Jonah humbled himself and praised God, not just asked for forgiveness, but he praised God, even in dire circumstances. The third passage that I want us to look at is chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone give up their evil ways and call urgently on God. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. God's word is powerful. It's something that changes people and it changes their hearts. And these verses, this decree that the king gives out, show us the evidence of that. Jonah proclaimed the message of God and these people not only listened, but they repented and put away their evil nature itself. And then in the last verse of that same chapter, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. We see in this last verse of chapter 3 that the fruits of repentance, the fruits of adherence to God's transformative word come to light here. We see God's mercy. We see that God spares the Ninevites and in doing so shows his ultimate and infinite love for all of his creation, his mercy that he shows to his creation. And then 
I want us to take a look at chapter 4 and verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. Like I said earlier, Jonah hated the Ninevites because of the threat that they posed to his country. It wasn't just because they were a sinful people. Like I said, towards the very start of the sermon, Jonah was a zealous patriot. He was someone that did everything that he did for his country and for his God. He hated Nineveh because Nineveh stood directly opposed to Israel and its survival. It stood directly opposed to Israel and its goals. That was one of the biggest reasons. I'm sure it certainly wasn't the only. But that's something that you can't ignore. It was because he knew that God was going to be merciful and save these people, save his enemies, that he didn't want to go to Nineveh. But this verse shows us that that's not how God wanted Jonah to think. That's not how God wants us to think. He wants us to put people, souls, over country and over creed. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4, But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The Lord is a God of love and of wisdom. And he shows that to Jonah. He teaches Jonah a lesson about the sanctity of life in an unconventional way and makes his love for all of his creations known. So with these key verses in mind, I want us to look at three quick applications that we can take and that each one of us should try to keep in mind from the book of Jonah. The first application is that national sin demands national repentance. When Jonah preached the word of God to the people, and they began to repent in Nineveh. Did God decide to save them? No. It was not until the king made an official decree that all of Assyria needed to mourn and repent of their sins that God decided to change his mind. Sin on a national level, sin like the Assyrians had committed, the atrocities that we talked about earlier, the things that they had done required national repentance. There were many times that Judah as a nation repented under the leadership of their kings that loved God. That is why the nation of Judah stood for so much longer than the nation of Israel, who never took part in any kind of national repentance like that. God's in control of the nations. He chooses who to raise up and who to bring down low, who to destroy. We have to understand that though he's chosen to raise up the place that we live in now, he could just as easily at any time choose to destroy it. We have a marred history, just like every other nation throughout the entirety of the world has. Slavery, war crimes, racism, slaughter of natives, national sins that require national repentance. God cares about the repentance of the individual. Don't confuse my discussion about national repentance for thinking that he doesn't. But he also cares about the repentance of the community, about the repentance of of the group as a whole. So what does that mean for us? Push for repentance and humility in times of great error and sin. That's what we have to do. Push for others to correct their ways. One day, our homeland is going to face the same choice that Nineveh was faced with. 
And that choice is going to dictate whether we receive the mercy or the wrath of God. Just like the nation of Israel did. Next, we need to learn that we cannot run from our God. And this is a short but simple point. It's one that Jonah hammers home. No matter how hard Jonah tried to escape God, he was not able to. Like I said before, we serve a God that's omniscient and omnipresent. He knows where we are, and he has the power to put everything into his control. So don't run from the Lord. Instead, run to the Lord. Run to his love. Run to his mercy. Otherwise, we may end up swallowed up. Not by a great fish, but by the sins of this world. And thirdly and finally, we need to understand how concerned for life our God is. Yahweh is the creator and perfecter of all creation, and so he has love for all of his creation, not just those who do his will. God desperately wants the lost to be found, and for the, he aches for the blind to see. He is not willing that any of us would fall into destruction. As 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God was so concerned for these people that he sent a valuable servant of his word to speak to them. To save them from himself, from themselves. He saw that these people who, although they had a wicked past, were willing to make a change. And he forgave them for it. God wants to forgive. He wants to show you his mercy. So no matter how deep in sin you think you are, no matter how wicked you think you might have become, realize that God cares for you and he cares for your soul. He wants you to live forever with him in paradise. But it's up to us to humble ourselves before him and to ask for that repentance. We serve a God of love, forgiveness, and of mercy. And the story of Jonah is a perfect example of the nature of God. When I look at this story, I see the God from the parable of the lost coin mirrored exactly. I see the nature of the God that has existed since creation, since the Old Testament, since the New Testament, from now until the end of time. I see that our God has not changed. That he is still concerned with the lives of all of his creation, not just those who serve him now. So be like Jonah. Chapter 3, Jonah. Be like the Jonah that brought the word of God to the people of the world and saved their lives and their souls. Be like the Jonah that was repentant. Be like the Jonah that went out into a world of darkness and was a light. If you need help being that light this week, if you need to come to God to repent, to find his mercy, why don't you come forward as we stand and as we sing.